So as I said a little earlier, we've been looking at the book of Matthew in our sermons, and now we're going to continue with the book of Matthew in our afternoon study. But understand it will change somewhat because it won't be in sermon form. When I do sermons, I usually try and exhort people's behavior and teach as well. But when teaching a, a class, I just drop the exhortation. So there will be less of what this means for our lives and more of what Matthew was trying to convey to the people of the first century. So we're in Matthew chapter 12 and at the end of the chapter with verse 38. But we wanna, I want to set this up because it's been a couple of weeks since we, we looked at Matthew. And I think it would be helpful if we read from like verse 22 with just a tad of commentary to refresh our memories uh, because it's taken us a while to get through this chapter. It's been quite the chapter. So verse 22 reads this way. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind, mute, and Yeshua healed him so that he could both talk and see. And the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? And so Yeshua heals this man And as we find out a few verses later, he also delivers him from a demon. And this display of the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, elicits this response from the crowd. And it really should read more like, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? So the people are asking if this is the Messiah, the King of Israel, the son of David. And so this tells us that they expected the Messiah to come with this kind of power. And the Pharisees respond to the people's question this way. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So here's what happens. They see the power of God working through Yeshua, and they attribute and give credit for this powerful deliverance to Hasatan, the adversary of God. And remember, by doing this, they have just blasphemed God and given his glory to Hasatan. And so Yeshua responds this way. Yeshua knew their thoughts and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. Then how can his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. And so Yeshua, in essence, says Satan will not drive out Satan because that would be fighting against himself. And then he turns this argument back on them by saying, by whom do your people drive out demons? I'll read a little bit farther and it says, but if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the one to come. So just briefly on this part, which you've already covered, Yeshua tells them of their error. And he also tells them that they've just blasphemed the Holy Spirit. A sin that has consequences both in this age and in the one to come. And remember, blasphemy, as we saw, simply stated, is just to slander someone. And in this case, they've slandered 
the Holy Spirit, and they've also slandered Yeshua. That's why he says, blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. And then in verse 33, he says, make a good tree and its fruit will be good. Make a bad tree and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good tidings out of the good stored up within him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. That's a staggering thought for me anyway because I see how careless people are with their words. And it says by every word you will be acquitted and condemned. And so when I hear some things come out of people's mouths, you know, I just literally cringe. And sometimes I cringe at some of the things that I say and repent rather rapidly. But anyway, so Yeshua healed and delivered from a demon, a, a demon from a man, to the protest of the Pharisees. They accuse him of driving out demons by the power of Hasatan. And Yeshua effectively refutes their accusation and rebukes them. Today we're going to see that they're not repentant over all of this. We're going to to enter in some new verses now. and, And we find out they aren't even repentant. But what they do is they ask for a miraculous sign, which is really strange, as he's just given them one in driving out a demon. I would call that a miraculous sign. And so they did not repent, but they continue with their accusations and questioning of Yeshua. And they say this in verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he answered, Wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign. And so you have to ask, after Yeshua healed this man, a deaf man, drove out a demon before their eyes, what other miraculous sign would they want? The generation in the time of Yeshua, you have to understand that the generation in the time of Yeshua was not so nice. Remember, Yochanan the Immerser was put to death because he rebuked Herod for adultery. And where it says wicked, you have to understand that murder was commonplace. In fact, there was a group who if they disagreed with you, they would step up behind you in a crowd and pull out a dagger and stab you. The first century Israel was kind of a treacherous place. If you crossed Rome or anyone in power, they could have you put to death on the stake, the fate of Yeshua. This was not uncommon in the first century. To the point, to point this up, remember that I said Yochanan was put to death because of, he accused Herod of adultery. So when Yeshua says wicked and adulterous generation, I think he means it literally. He also means it figuratively. Because they have come to him wickedly seeking to discredit Yeshua through blasphemy, which uh, we spoke of in the last lesson. And as I pointed out in that lesson, evil speech to the rabbis is seen as murder. Because it murders the person's character, his good name. And these were the teachers of Israel. They should have recognized Yeshua as the Messiah. They should have recognized the power of God. It worked through him. And yet... They accuse him of doing it through Hasatan and ask him for a sign. And this is something, as Yeshua enters in Jerusalem his last week, he laments over. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 19 and verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Yeshua, 
Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground and you and your children within the walls and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. They should have known. They should have known that Messiah was to come. The expectation of Messiah's coming was great. They're really without excuse because they failed to recognize Yeshua and the Holy Spirit at work through him. And so he calls them adulterous in the figurative sense as well. If you fail to recognize the work of God and you attribute that power to another, if you fail to see Messiah, if you look for another, you're actually looking to worship another. And God terms that adultery. And so Yeshua continues. He says this in verse 40. But none will be given you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Yeshua says, tells them, that he is going to be in the ground for three days and three nights. In other words, after his death, he'll be buried and remain for three days and three nights. Now the debate over what is meant here is great. And you have to ask yourself, did Yeshua mean literally 72 hours when he said three days and three nights? Because if you think about it, that's near impossible to come up with 72 hours, three days and three nights. But if you consider that Jewish law and biblical law both allow for part of a day to be reckoned as a whole day, then three days and three nights becomes quite possible. Now, the church remembers Friday as the day Yeshua is buried, but if you put Yeshua in the ground on Friday, as the church is done, you can't get three days and three nights. If you put Yeshua in the ground on Wednesday evening, as some suggest, then you'll have him in the ground three days and four nights. But if you put Yeshua in the ground on Thursday, at about sundown, that would give you three days and three nights. You could figure it two ways. We can figure it two ways. First, you would get Thursday evening, Friday evening, and Saturday evening for the three nights. When reckoning the days, you would begin with Thursday as part of a day, and then Friday as the second day, and Saturday as the third day, if you went in the ground before sundown. Another way of figuring the days would be like this. You could have him go into the ground at sundown on Thursday, making Thursday night the first night, Friday night, the second night, and Saturday night, the third night. And then you would have Friday day, the first day, Saturday day, the second day, and Sunday day, the third day, the day that he rose from the dead. And this agrees with Scripture because as Scripture says in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22, it says, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise to life. And so... There's a couple ways you can do it. I'm, 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 I kind of lean toward the latter because of this verse. So there are many ways to figure it, but the, chrono, but, uh, the chronology, but to say that Yeshua 
said, as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish for three days and three nights would mean exactly 72 hours, that would be impossible. Now remember, Yeshua is addressing the fact that they have not repented, but continued with their interrogation, and so he's going to bring to their minds some who, who did repent. They didn't repent, but he's going to bring to their mind some who did. Remember, Jonah was sent to Nineveh to get the people of Nineveh to repent. And they were, of course, Gentiles, and they did, in fact, repent. And so Yeshua says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the day of judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah was here. I want to go read this story of the Ninevites real quick. It's just six verses. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 5 says, The Ninevites believed God, They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let Everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he threatened. And so what I want you to see here is Yeshua uses this example of Jonah and Nineveh. The people of Nineveh did repent. And most of us knew that. But what I want you to notice is that the king and the nobles, the other leaders, all repented as well. And here we have standing before Yeshua, the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the people, the interpreters of the law for the people. They have not recognized the hour of their visitation. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit and Messiah. But these leaders of the people didn't even have the sense of the people of Nineveh to repent as Yeshua rebuked them. But they continued with their interrogation. And because the leaders of the people of Nineveh repented, and leaders and the people of Nineveh repented, they're going to stand up on the day of judgment. In other words, what does that mean? They're going to stand up. They're going to be resurrected on the day of judgment because that stand up means to be resurrected. And this because they repented. And because the Pharisees did not repent of their blasphemy against Yeshua in the previous verses, those who have repented will judge those who did not. That's good news for non-Jews, isn't it? It's good news for the non-Jews of the world who've turned to God and repented. Yeshua is telling us that they will be a part of the resurrection. And he continues with the same theme. This time he's going to use the queen of the south, which would be the queen of Sheba. And he says in verse 42, the queen of Sheba will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Let's read the portion that covers this too in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 6-9. through 9. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw it with my own eyes. Indeed, Not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. 
How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And so the queen of Sheba, royalty, comes to Solomon upon recognizing his wisdom and the fact that it could have only come from God. She gives praise to the God of Israel. And these leaders of the Gentile peoples acknowledged God, repented. These Pharisees have listened to the wisdom of Yeshua and they failed to recognize that and give glory to God. But the queen of Sheba, she didn't. She gave glory to God. So the point here is, these Gentiles that he talks about gave praise to the God of Israel and they will rise. They will rise at the resurrection and there will be many of the people of Israel who will not accept to be judged because they will rise and they will judge those people because of their hard hearts. The people of Nineveh recognized God through the words of one sent to them. These people have not recognized Yeshua, though he's the word made flesh and sent to them. The queen of Sheba recognized God through Solomon, the king of Israel, and his wisdom. She recognized him through his wisdom because of his deeds and his words, and yet these leaders of Israel have not And because of that, they will not rise at the resurrection except to be judged by those who did repent. And what Yeshua is saying to us is that He is the way, the truth, and the light. And if you fail to see that, if you reject Him and His words, you will not rise on the day of judgment except to have those who did judge you. Next, Yeshua draws us back to this exorcism that he did in the er earlier, which started this entire discourse. He's going to tell us a parable. Yeshua uses parables often, and he, he uses them slightly different than the rabbis of his day. The rabbis of his day would first state the precedent that they were trying to teach. In other words, they would state this truth, and then they would say, what can this be likened to? Yeshua, on the other hand, most often, he just leaves off the truth that he's trying to teach and he just gives the parable. In other words, the story of the ten virgins, as we'll see when we cover it in a couple of weeks, is about giving and performing good deeds. Keeping the commands of God, the commands of Torah to perform good deeds. And most rabbis would have said something like this if they were going to give this parable. They would have said, What can one who does good deeds of Torah and one who does not do good deeds of Torah be likened? And then they would have told the story of the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. Well, Yeshua, he just usually just tells the parable. He might say something like, what can the kingdom of heaven be likened to? And then tell this long parable without stating the precedent first. And that's kind of what happens here. He says this, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And final condition of the man is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now, I want to say something about this passage. I really don't think uh, that we should look at this as a teaching on exorcism, demon exorcism. But more than likely, it's just another lesson that Yeshua is trying to teach on repentance. And I say that 
Because the same truth is true of repentance. Think about it. If a person has a demon driven out of him and he doesn't repent, he doesn't change his life because he really liked the way things were, he opens the door for that demon to return. He invites him back in. That's why Yeshua says the house is clean. It's put in order. In other words, it's clean and he's invited back. The same is true of sin. If a person sins... He might say he's sorry, but if he doesn't repent, then it's easier to commit that sin the next time. And the next time, easier. And the next time, easier. And that's why Yeshua says, that is how it is for this wicked generation. They have sinned. These Pharisees have sinned. They've been confronted with their sin. They have not repented. That generation, as I said earlier, failed to see the hour of their visitation and they did not repent. These Pharisees have blasphemed Yeshua. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They did not repent. And so the interrogation continued. Now as we go into the next five verses, he will help us to recall something that Yeshua made clear earlier in the chapter. And that is, there's no middle ground. He said this, remember, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. There's no middle ground. And they also said, he who's not with me is against me, and he does not gather with me scatters. You see, Yeshua really leaves no room for compromise. There are no gray areas. They're just black and white. Either you're with me or you're not. Well, the same thought applies in the next five verses. Listen to what he says in verse 46. While Yeshua was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Now, it's particularly with the... Uh, Jews for Judaism and so forth, you hear people accuse Yeshua of not honoring his father and mother here. But I don't really see that. Just because Yeshua doesn't drop his teaching the crowd, stop ex what he's doing and go out and speak to his mother and brother, it doesn't mean that he dishonored his mother and brother. But remember, so Yeshua is still teaching here and he's going to use this very thing, this very happening to make a point that he made above. And that is no compromise. You know, I love my mother. She supports this ministry. Just as I am sure Yeshua's mother supported the, uh, Yeshua in his ministry. But it, when it comes to family, to Kehillat, to, to what we talked about earlier in the sermon today, Sar Shalom is my family. Yeshua is my family. Those who do the will of the Father in heaven are my family. And that's exactly what Yeshua says. It's easy to understand this state statement when you are part of a true community because those of the community do become as your mother, your brothers, and your sister. Those outside the community, not so much. Even though you may like them, not so much. It doesn't mean that you don't honor your mother, but you spend more time with the community. Yeshua is saying that those who love and do the will of the Father are those who he relates to and those who do not, he cannot relate to. That isn't to say that his mother didn't do the will of the Father, but I'm just, yeah, I think you're, you get my point.
And so we're finally through chapter 12. I wanted to get through that today. And we're in chapter 13. And the whole of the chapter 13 is about parables. Parables are stories. They're illustrations, like sermon illustrations, to make the deeper meanings of Scripture known to the listener. They're like, like a sermon illustration. A common misconception is that parables were told to obscure or hide the truths of Scripture. That's not the case. They are illustrations that were used anciently by the rabbis to teach people. You have to ask yourself, what teacher would stand in front of his students and obscure the truth? That's not the goal of a teacher. The goal of a teacher is to instruct those who are listening to to him. We get this misunderstanding from some words that Yeshua said in this very chapter. Verse 10 of chapter 13, he says this. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. That is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. And so Yeshua seems to insinuate that he's hiding the truth from those present. But again, that's not the object of telling a parable. The object of telling a parable is to make a biblical truth more easy to understand. Listen to the Hebrew word for parable. It's the word mashal. It means to speak in parables, to rule, to master. Notice that it means to rule or to master. Parables were used by a teacher who has a mastery of Scripture to convey that truth to a student, the deeper meaning of Scripture, in a way that he can master it, that he can understand it. Listen to a couple of these ancient stories about parables. Some Midrash. Our rabbis say, let not the parable be lightly esteemed in your eyes, since by means of a parable, a man can master the words of Torah. If a king loses gold from his house or a precious pearl, does he not find it by means of a whip worth a, worth a farthing? So the parable should not be lightly esteemed in your eyes, since by means of a parable, a man arrives at the true meaning of the words of Torah. Here is... Here is a proof that it is so. Solomon, by means of a parable, penetrated the finest nuances of Torah. Let me read another one. It says, Imagine a deep well containing cold water, chilled and delicious, and pure water, but none could get a drink from it until one man came, joining rope to rope, cord to cord, and drew from it and drank. Then all began to draw and drink. In the same way, Proceeding from one thing to another, one parable to another, parables penetrate to the deepest meaning of Torah. And so parables actually are just the opposite of what Yeshua just said. They are stories which are supposed to make it easier to understand Scripture. The rabbi is telling us uh, uh, parables drew on a wealth of commonly understood symbols because parables like Sermon illustrations use simple things to convey the deeper meanings of Torah. Yeshua does the same thing. 
He used the simple things. Many of the people of Israel were farmers and fishermen. And so Yeshua speaks of sowing seeds, weeds, tares, vineyards, vineyard workers, landowners. Some of the people of Israel were fishermen, so he uses the theme of nets and fish in his parables. Many worked the land for owners. He uses that theme. They were all familiar with wedding customs, and so he uses those themes to convey Bible truths, the story of the ten virgins. The point being, they're not complicated, but they're simple. If I tell you a story too difficult to understand to explain a deeper meaning of Torah, then I've missed the mark as being a teacher. I'm not a teacher. I'm someone who spews out mystery. And so this is important to understand when reading Yeshua's parables that his parables have a specific meaning. And if you don't understand that specific meaning uh, and you apply your own meaning to that, to the, to that parable, uh, if you don't understand the elements of a parable and you insert your own elements in that parable, you're going to misunderstand what Rabbi Yeshua was saying. And I said earlier, usually rabbis would state the element of the parable first. They would state the principle. And then they would say, to what can this be likened? And then they would give their parable. And I pulled up an example out of the Talmud, Sanhedrin 91a. This parable says, the emperor asked rabbi how there could be punishment in the life beyond, for since the body and the soul, after their separation, could, could not have committed sin, they, were, they blame each other for the sins upon the earth. And the rabbi replied, I will tell thee a parable to what this can be compared. And now, so we have the subject of the parable here. Now the parable. A certain king had a beautiful garden in which was excellent fruit. And over it he appointed two watchmen. One blind, the other lame. The lame man said to the blind one, I see exquisite fruit in the garden. Carry me thither that I may get it and we will eat together. The blind men consented and both ate the fruit. After some days, the Lord of the garden came and asked the watchman concerning the fruit. And the lame man said, as I have no legs, I could not go to take it. And the blind man said, I could not even see it. What, the, what did the Lord of the garden do? He made the blind man carry the lame and thus passed judgment on them both. So God will replace the souls in their bodies and will punish both together for their sins. And so we have all the elements of the parable in the parable stated first. The blind man uh, and the legless man. The blind man is the soul, the legless man, and, and, and the red. once you have these elements, then the parable becomes easy. So a parable is to make a hard lesson easier. Let's read one of Yeshua's parables. Let's read uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. So if a parable is used was used in the first century to make things easy, why would it say Yeshua spoke to them so that they would not understand? Well, the answer, um, why wouldn't they understand? The answer lies in the word parable. Let's read it for you. The meaning of the word parable. Placing one thing by the side of another. Juxtaposition as 
ships in battle. Metaphorically, a comparing, a comparison of one thing to another, a likeness, a similitude. And so what makes parables so useful, useful, as I said earlier, and helps the listener to understand is that the two are laid side by side. As in the question of the emperor above, then the parable answering the question. They are side by side. So you get the elements explained for you. So the problem with Yeshua's parables is he doesn't give them the elements to start out with. They have to identify them for themselves. It would be like reading a parable that we just read without the question of the emperor first. See, you wouldn't understand the elements of the parable. You would have to figure out what the blind man and what the legless man symbolized. And if we got it wrong, then we'd never know what the rabbi was talking about, would we? The same is true of the parables of Yeshua. You have to take the time to figure out what is meant usually by mere words like the kingdom of heaven is like. So you have to have a knowledge of the kingdom of heaven if you're going to understand the parable. Okay? So let's uh, now go to chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Not that we have an idea of what we're looking at here. Because I like this parable because this is one of the few parables where Yeshua gives us both. He gives them in reverse order, though. That same day, Yeshua went out of the house and sat by the lake. Large crowds gathered around him that he got into the boat and he sat in it. And while the people stood on the shore, he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow seed, and he was scattering the seed, and some fell along the path, and birds came and ate it up. Some fell in the rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came, the plants were scorched, and they were withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plant, still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, thirty, sixty, thirty times that which was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. And so, again, we get no preamble. We get no elements identified for us. But because I think we we could have probably pieced this together because of the context. Yeshua is about to teach these people And what is Yeshua going to teach these people? Well, what his message is always? The kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's the seed in the story. That's what's being sown. He's about to teach the message of the kingdom to a group of potential disciples. And so again, the seed is the message and the path. The rocky places, the thorns, and the good soil are the disciples. The crop is obedience to God. In his Torah, producing good deeds, and it will produce, and if that happens, it will produce another crop because fruit always produces more seed. So some fell at the edges of the field where the soil had not been prepared because uh, of stones, the seed had no root. When the sun came and scorched the small plants, they withered, the sun being the pressures of God's word, living out the commands of God. The same is true of the thorns. The small plants were in fierce competition for water and for sun. And they died as the pressures of the world, uh, symbolizing the pressures of the world, keeping people from doing good deeds and pursuing the kingdom of God. And then still some fell in the intended places where the farmer had prepared the soil and it produced a crop. It fell where the farmer, who in this story is the Spirit of God and Messiah, had worked the soil. It sprang up and, and with plants like 
its own, like with near-like plants, no weeds, no rocks to choke it off, with water and with sunlight where it could develop roots and produce a harvest. So here's what we have. Yeshua is going to explain this and we'll look at it in a minute, but here's what we have. We have this farmer and he's prepared this field and he's, he's, he's worked the soil and he's going with a bag of seed flung over his shoulder and he's spreading the seed and he's scattering the seed He's prepared the field, but because he's throwing the seed, the wind takes some of that seed and it falls along a path. It doesn't get down into the soil, and so the birds come and eat it. The birds in the parable are the adversaries of God, Hasatan, the evil one. The unprepared path is the hardness of the hearts of the people. They become calloused, hard of heart, so the seed lies on top of the soil, and it's easily eaten by the birds. He scatters other seed, which falls on the edges of the fields and springs up. But because of the rocks at the edge of the field, it quickly withers and dies. The same with the thorns, uncut thorn bushes. Uh, so the seeds uh, cannot last because they, they can't compete with the thorn bushes for water and for sun. And so they quickly die out too. And so these are people who do not hear the message. They do not see. And the seed can't flourish and those are those who hear the message of the kingdom but do not understand. And then we have the field itself and the seed flourishes. And because, you know, if you plant seed in any field, if you go, if you go th- drive through the countryside and you look at a farmer's field, you're going to see that all the corn doesn't grow at the same height. Some of the corn grows short, some of the corn grows tall, depending on where, the, where it is in the field. And so that's why Yeshua says some produce uh, 30, 60, some 100 fold. Okay, and then after that, Yeshua says, he who has ears, let him hear. Whenever you hear this phrase in scripture, the word for hear would be Shema. And it means more than what we think of as just hearing. It means hear with understanding and obey. And so what Yeshua is really saying when he says, he who has ears, let him hear. He's saying, listen, this is important. Listen up. Listen and obey. And this would have been terminology that these farmers would have understood. Now, let's read a little bit farther with, in verse 10. It says, The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak in parables? And he replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. So why don't they understand the parable? Well, again, it's because there was no preamble, no question, no statement of fact in front of it. But now Yeshua, he's in private and he, give, he will give them that part of the parable. goes on to say, Whoever has been given more, he will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but not perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. And so Yeshua explains to his disciples that the path, the hard ground, is the calloused heart that does not understand. The rocky places, the thorn bushes are those who hardly hear, whose eyes do not see. Those who do hear and see, whose hearts are not calloused are the ground that's been prepared by Yeshua. Their hearts understand, 
turn and Yeshua heals them. Now, he's going to explain the parable next. But first he says this, But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you have seen, but did not see it. And hear, but did not hear it. He says, Blessed, and this is our word blessed again. If you remember back to chapter 5, Yeshua says, Blessed are your eyes. Because unlike those that he just spoke of in the parable, their eyes see and their ears hear. These men are given truths that others are not and are blessed because of that. But not only blessed in, in looking at those who were present at that day, but also the prophets and the righteous men of the past. They long to see what these men are seeing. They long to see Messiah, but did not. They long to hear him, but did not. And that is not to say that they didn't know Messiah, but they did not see his pers- the personage of Messiah, but they only saw him in dreams and visions. And so these men are seeing what the prophets long to see. Listen to what Peter says about this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Messiah in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Then they spoke of the things that have not been told had now been told by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. And so what Peter's telling us is the prophets saw the coming of Messiah. It was revealed to them, but they would not see it in, in the reality in their lifetime. They were speaking to future generations. They saw things that, that people, these people are now realizing. And not just the prophets long to see them, but angels long to see these things that they're seeing. And Yeshua is saying, how blessed are your eyes. How blessed are your ears. Because you have seen what the prophets spoke of, what they heard from me, what they longed to see, what they longed to hear. You are now seeing face to face. If they were blessed, think of how blessed you are. If they were blessed, think of how blessed you are. The prophets long to realize what you've been given. They saw a future redemption of the people of Israel and those of the nations. You've seen it. You're part of the redemption. You can look back on history and see the resurrection. You can see the fulfillment of Psalm 22, prophecy of David, and Isaiah 53 of Isaiah. But more than that, we can experience something that they never experienced. The Lord Yeshua has taken up residence in our hearts. And how blessed we are because of that. Now let's read uh, a little bit farther. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart, the seed sown along the path. The one who receives the seed that fell in rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. 
But the one who received the seed that fell on the good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And so the one who hears and understands are the blessed. They're blessed because the farmer has prepared the soil. So here's the deal. From now on when we read parables, we won't get this explanation. All we're going to get is the kingdom of heaven is like. And so it'll be important for us to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like so that we can compare the parable to that. Because that's what Yeshua is saying. He's, we're supposed to have knowledge of the kingdom of heaven so that when he says the kingdom of heaven is likened to, we can understand the elements of the parable and come derive the correct meaning of the parable that Yeshua is speaking. And so next week we'll go finish going through chapter 13 or, or at least a good many of these parables and find out what tr- Yeshua was truly meant in these parables. All right?